0: how does a formula one team go from failing to qualify for a race to almost winning the next one that's the question we'll attempt to answer on this latest episode of bring back v10s where we revisit the 1990 french grand prix it's an incredibly famous race in f1 history and if you don't yet know why that is by the end of this episode we're sure you will Before we crack on, remember if you'd like to ask us a question for our series finale, you can do it using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice and throw in a question there as well and we'll add them to our list. We've had a bunch of reviews since series two started actually, so I'll give a quick thank you to Kieran, Nico, Chris and Cisco who are some of the most recent listeners to leave us a review. They are much appreciated and like I say, I do make sure that we read them all. I'm Glenn Freeman and joining me to look back on a brilliantly bizarre weekend in F1 history are two people who are very fond of this race, Sam Smith and Ed Straw. Sam, we'll let you go first with the opening question because when we discussed you being on this episode ahead of time, you declared your levels of adoration for this race to be not far behind Ed's. So you can take the opening question, which is, of course, when you think of this race, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, that's a big billing, Glenn, thanks, but uh, I think it was just the sheer excitement of
1: seeing Ivan Capelli about to win his first Grand Prix after failing to qualify a fortnight before in Mexico. Uh, I was just so sure that he was going to do it. Uh, Prost had been looking for for several laps and just didn't seem to have an answer to... To that Miami blue Leighton House, so I was just stunned into immobility really at the prospects of Capelli winning his first Grand Prix in, in such an unlikely manner, and then that sense of crushing despair I think as he he just faltered with with a with an issue in the last few laps and Pross went through. Uh, I feel a little tearful just thinking of it now
0: really, but uh, that's the that's the way it was thirty years ago. Yeah, and who doesn't love Leighton House? Uh, Ed, we know you do, but I've got a different opening question for you. Uh, As we mentioned there, we know you love this race. You were always going to be on this episode. But can you please tell our listeners which driver you almost didn't get in our 1990s F1 podium finishers quiz on the race website, which you were taking earlier this week?
2: Yeah, it it took me about two minutes to get the last one, and it was doubly amusing because I actually had the French Grand Prix of 1990 on at the time, uh, because I thought, well, I'll watch the full race just in preparation for this. And so there I was watching Capelli, still hoping he'd hold on, just desperately hoping that this time at the 100th viewing, he would actually uh, hold on for those few extra laps. And then, yeah. Um, what was staring me in the face was Ivan Capelli was a podium finisher and I completely forgot. So yeah, not, not very uh, not very impressive, but uh, that, that was a, that was just a, a brief moment of weakness for me. Normally I, I think about Capelli's uh, French Grand Prix at least once a day. So uh, yeah, it's, it's always very much in mind.
0: Yeah, and, uh, and I'm doing my bit as well. Uh, I was reminded just before we started recording this podcast that I own a Leighton House t-shirt, so I've put that on and might have to take a picture as proof. But uh, as you know, if you've listened to these podcasts before, and if this is your first one, go back through the feed and and check out the rest of them. We're a a few episodes into Series 2 now, so you've got a whole first series and a couple of this series already to go back and check. But we don't just talk about the race. uh, We talk about what else is going on in F1 at the time. And One of the big stories heading into the French Grand Prix weekend involved a team that wasn't even on the grid yet, and that's Jordan. Eddie Jordan's team were gearing up to move from F3000 to F1 for 1991 with a car designed by our very own Gary Anderson. And head of the French Grand Prix, it's announced that Jordan has secured Ford engines for its F1 bow. The announcement says that Jordan's engines will be the same specification as Ford's works team Benetton, but that raises some alarm bells at Benetton as they don't think that matches the terms of their contract. A Ford statement comes out a week later which says, The Ford Formula One engine has been designed and developed in cooperation with Cosworth, which is now extending its F1 facilities to support this increased use of the Ford engine. The three-year agreement between Benetton and Ford for the further development of the Ford F1 engine and associated systems for use only in the Benetton Ford F1 car continues unchanged. Benetton also feels the need to release a statement that says, Jordan's engines will be a standard fixed specification engine supplied under a commercial arrangement between Cosworth and Jordan. The engines will be rebuilt by an outside facility and will not run on Ford Electronics. So in summary, really, Jordan is getting a Cosworth offshoot customer supplier rather than the same works Ford engines as Benetton. But it's still significant. So let's quickly hear from Gary Anderson on how important he felt it was for Jordan to get a sought after engine like this for its debut season. And Gary also tells us of the chance meeting that helped things come together.
3: Yeah, I mean it was very, very important for us. Uh, we were designing it around the Judd engine at the time, the V ten, and suddenly this deal from Cosworth came up, and uh, it was quite an interesting way that it happened. Really, Andrew Green, who's technical director now at, at Racing Point, and myself were coming back from a visit to the the people who were going to make our chassis for us, and we stopped off at the White Hart in Silverstone for something for lunch, and went in there, and it was pretty busy, so. Um, there was a guy sitting there at a table on his own, and we ordered a sandwich and an orange juice, as you do, and said to him, could we, you know, any chance we could sit down there? Um, and he said, yeah, yeah, no problem. And he sort of said, you know, who are you? And we told him who we were, and I said, who are you? And he said, his name was Bernard Ferguson from uh, from Cosworth. And he said, what are you doing about engines for the car and stuff? And I said, well, we're using Judd. He said, oh, he said, uh, would you know? Would you be interested in a Cosworth engine? I said, well, I'm sure we would be. I, I don't make those decisions, really. i would be down to Eddie. And he said, well, here's here's my card. Get Eddie to give me a ring and, and we'll see what we can do. And uh, so that was it. The way we went, I gave Eddie the card, a couple of phone calls, and we had a deal with Cosworth. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was one of those sort of situations. That what we had wasn't very much different from what Benetton had uh, initially. Um, and then it obviously, Benetton's engine moved on a little bit. There was a time during the middle of the year, I think it was going up to Montreal, where we're, theoretically we were going to get the Benetton spec. But then it... Um, it did get put back again. So we ended up basically finishing the year with the same spec as we started with. Good little package, very good little package, worked very well. Good company to work with, you know, perfect for us for uh, 1991, for our first year.
0: So as always, the best things in F1 start off in the pub. But Ed, this was the era of pre-qualifying in F1, and Jordan would, of course, join those ranks uh, as a newcomer. And we were becoming used to quite a few of these teams being absolute chances trying to get onto the grid. So was an engine deal like this an important marker for Jordan just in terms of credibility? Yeah, massively so. It wasn't just any old Ford Cosworth deal. Jordan was
2: not going to get the DFR engine that you know, AGS, Larousse, Coloni, Fon Mattel, people like that started ninety one with it was a proper Ford H B engine. So even though it wasn't quite the works spec, it was still the the more advanced latest engine, shall we say. So it elevated Jordan from the ranks of another one of these, as you said, Chanter teams that turned up during this period into something a little bit more serious. And while the genius of our very own Gary Anderson, along with Andrew Green now at Racing Point, and Mark Smith, who went on to have a very successful technical career in F1, creates a hell of a car for the new team, having that engine package helped them make the most of it and also will have helped Eddie Jordan enormously in terms of pulling together all the sponsorship and making the team look credible, as indeed it proved to be once it hit the track.
0: And in his book, Eddie Jordan says that he targeted Ford early on but they initially didn't want to detract from their works program with Benetton. I think EJ tells a great story about basically hanging out in the reception of one of Ford's headquarters in the US and nobody being willing to have a meeting with him and him basically saying, I'm not going to leave until somebody talks to me. Uh, But in the end, of course, Cosworth, as Gary explained, were keen to expand their business. So that's how the customer opportunity came about. Eddie said the, the engines would always be one or two steps behind the Benetton spec. And he he didn't care what terminology was used when a load of fuss broke out about if they'd be called Cosworths or Fords. And the matter was resolved when Ford decided there'd be a marketing benefit to letting the cars be Jordan Fords rather than Jordan Cosworths. Now Sam, we heard Gary briefly mention that he thought they were going to be using a Judd engine that year. And there was also the option of Lamborghini for Jordan as well. Do you think Jordan's season would have looked very different if they'd ended up with one of those engines? Uh, undoubtedly it would have
1: done yeah you know it's interesting because Leighton House dismissed Judd for Ilmore at the end of 1990 which left them with just I think Scuderi, Italia and, and Lotus to supply that the former somehow snared a podium with Leto at Imola but that apart, it was slim pickings really and Jordan more often than not were were quicker than um, than Scuderia Italia. The, the Lambos in 90 warm were were not as good as they were in in ninety with LaRusse in particular. I mean it, it can't have been Lola's fault, obviously. But uh, <laughs> you know in that that sort of disastrous and ungainly Ligier, the JS thirty five, it was it was pretty woeful. Uh, although I think that was more more Ligier's fault. And then the moderner team, of course, was uh, was want for for a lot of things. So I, Eddie made the right call in the summer of nineteen ninety. Definitely, even if it was a fixed spec, uh, fixed spec unit, and with with Lamborghini he probably dodged a bullet in some respects. I, I think, you know, in in the case of, of of taking the Cosworth deal, it was definitely the right choice. However, I would suggest that the ninety one Jordan and the V twelve Lambo, from an aesthetic and acoustic standpoint, yeah, would have been bloody hard to beat, um, to say the least. I think.
0: Gary probably would have had his work cut out to fit that engine in the back of the 191. Uh, But we'll park Jordan there until later in the series when they're at the centre of another episode, which involves their 1991 season. That's all the clues you'll get in. For now, Now we had Paul Ricard and Silverstone races were taking place back to back in this stage of the season. So the traditional pre-British Grand Prix test had to take place before the teams went to France. Alain Prost wasn't in attendance for Ferrari, leaving Nigel Mansell to do the work. And Mansell was quickest at the test. But Ferrari's priority here was to build up mileage on a new spec engine, which blew up after 15 laps. But it was such a big power hike, Ferrari ends up deciding to take the new engine to France just for qualifying. Mansell's fastest time at the test is over a second quicker than Ayrton Senna's 1989 pole lap at Silverstone. And Nigel being Nigel, he can't resist periodically bolting on qualifying tyres to bang in another quick time. But this was a point of contention during the year at Ferrari, as designer Steve Nichols explained in the Alain Prost book that we cited so many times in our Ferrari Prost episodes at the start of series one. Uh, Nichols said, Nigel's idea of testing would be to come along, do a few laps, then do a race distance. You'd say that the test driver could do the long runs, but Nigel would insist because effectively he could go out there, switch off and bang in the laps without having to use his brain too much. Then he'd want to do a few laps on qualifiers at the end of the day and we would have learned nothing. We uh, we talked about this a bit in our Prost fired by Ferrari doubleheader in part one. Uh, And we said that Prost would always roll his eyes when the team told him he needed to go out and go as fast as Mansell to stop the team gravitating towards Nigel. On that, Nichols added that Prost would protest and then ask for fuel out, qualifiers on, immediately do a lap three quarters of a second faster than Mansell come in and say, right, can we get back to work now? Nigel would be destroyed and start to mutter about politics. Mansell in his book referred to Prost as a meticulous tester, although he didn't run at the limit in testing, preferring to stretch himself only to about 90%. So Ed, if you're running an F1 team back in this era, which one out of Prost and Mansell would you prefer to have carrying out your testing work?
2: Well, when you've got a choice of a professor or a lion to do your testing, you go for the person with the uh, with the university certificate to back up what they're doing. I mean, Prost, great test driver, methodical, focused approach, really understood what the objectives of testing were, and he fed all that into executing these wonderful race drives. So you'd have to say Prost, but I would say that thing about Mansell, always wanting to do the quick lap, shouldn't be considered purely as a, as a negative, because from speaking to some of those who work with both, there was occasionally frustration with Prost that he would be driving at this 90% in testing, because sometimes you'd only find something out when you're on the limit, particularly if it was a balance question, or a, a tyre behaviour on the limit, this this kind of thing. So Mansell did have something to offer with that desire to go maximum attack, so uh, ideally you'd probably want to harness both of them properly, but... Uh, in most cases, you would indeed go for, go for Alan Prost, but we shouldn't say that, that his unwillingness to go right to the limit was 100% a good thing, because sometimes there is a benefit from doing that. Perhaps not as much as Mansell wanted to do it. And then, of course, there was all this political landscape, wasn't it? So, uh, obviously, it's, uh, it, it paid off for, for Prost sometimes to do that when he was forced to do it. But, uh, yeah, for Mansell, perhaps there was a little bit too much
0: going fast. For Prost, it was perhaps a little bit too much driving fully contained. It sounds a lot like Prost's 1993 season at Williams when he did win the championship. But let's get into more politics and mess, shall we? Because at this test, Mansell hints that he might be leaving Ferrari at the end of the season or quitting F1 entirely. We know, of course, that two weeks later at the British Grand Prix, he would announce his retirement. and We won't get into that now, but that's often remembered as an overreaction to retiring from a race he was trying to win. This shows, that, of course, there was a bit more backstory to it. At the test, Mansell said, It's been a fantastic two years I've had with Ferrari, and to be totally honest, I really don't know what I'm going to do next year. I've got several offers. Obviously, Ferrari at the moment is the favourite, but that's not certain. When we quoted Steve Nichols earlier, he made that little comment of saying Mansell would mutter about politics, and Nigel did more than mutter about it in his book. He talks about how quickly he felt things change around him the moment Prost arrived at Ferrari earlier in 1990. In his book, Mansell wrote... 1990 was an up-and-down season. The team transformed from being very supportive of me to being totally supportive of Prost. They brought the world champion in with number one on the car and they got behind him and gave him everything he wanted to my disadvantage, and I didn't like that. By the time of the Canadian Grand Prix, which is just a couple of races before what we're looking at, the team's support had shifted away from me and it was quite a blow. Reluctantly, I had to admit when asked by the press that Prost was not the man I thought he was. It was a very difficult period, The ground was shifting fast underneath my feet. The support from the team evaporated. Prost worked on the senior management of Ferrari and its parent company Fiat, telling them that we could not both go for the championship and that he represented their best chance. The effort should all be concentrated on him. Sam, this is one of those eternal arguments in F1 where there are two distinct sides, even to this day. Anyone on Mansell's side will tell you Prost was a politician, Anyone on Prost's side would say Mansell didn't work hard enough or couldn't live with Prost when Alain turned it up. What do you think was really going on?
1: Well, I, th- I think you've got to take Mansell's words with a bit of a pinch of salt in some ways because he was scorned early in, in uh, 1990 into Lagos. I think there was a bit of bit of Prost um, mind games going on on the grid, as as Fiorio stated. But when Mansell went into a trough, then, you know, boy, didn't you know about it. It was... I think early in 90s, as, as, as Fiorio said, Pross felt the need to suppress Mantle a little bit because he'd seen that sort of fire and brimstone from Mantle at Phoenix. And I genuinely think Pross thought that it was all a bit counterproductive. You know, it looks great on TV, but it doesn't get you very far when building a title campaign. Now, why with one season's grace at Ferrari Didn't Mansell not have similar attributes in trying to pull the team in his direction? He didn't seem to be able to do that at that stage of his career. And they'd been in Formula One for similar similar levels of time. I think he also bought into the whole Ileone romanticism too a bit, Mansell. And and this may have sort of clouded his his judgment a little bit in 1990. Um, The question I'd really ask here... is and it's an interesting aside and i made this point in a previous uh, podcast on uh, bring back v- v10s in the with the 95 mclaren is that you know mantle parked his car twice in 1990 at hockenheim and spa um and essentially gave up which people you know conveniently forget about his his whole complicated makeup but i think mantle not only completely underestimated pros but he he did so to the detriment of his career a little bit because if he could have tempered that paranoia and you know, a bit of martyr syndrome that he inherently had, then he could have at least challenged for the title in 1990. I'm sure he could have done that. You know, Prost may have played mind games and he may have played some politics, but Prost had realised through what he'd been with at McLaren with Senna that this was all now part of the game and, and why Mansell didn't have those attributes then um you have to give him the benefit of the doubt and just say it wasn't in his makeup um that's all i can really surmise from from how it played out in 90
0: and mansell says that piero fusaro the president of ferrari went to the french grand prix to convince him to stay for 1991 but uh nigel says i told him no way and mansell adds in his book i had learned my lesson there is only one driver at ferrari who can be number one and they choose who that will be the other driver is unlikely to win a race because they don't have the capacity to run two reliable cars. At Ferrari, you are not number one if you are not number one, you might as well not bother, you'll just be banging your head against a wall. That's where they broke me because if they'd given me the backing they gave Prost in nineteen ninety, backing I'd worked hard for in nineteen eighty nine, I would have been contesting and may even have won the world championship. Now Sam, you hinted there about how Mansell perhaps could have harnessed Ferrari to get a title shot in 90 so let's look at that but also do you think he was right that during this time Ferrari could only run one car properly I mean I think in 89 most of the bad luck went to Gerhard Berger when Nigel came in so perhaps is there a bit of a credible theory there
1: I'm not, I'm not so sure really I mean when you look at the the stats in 89 yes Berger did have the um the reliable or the the main reliability issues, but he did score a win at Estrell. So it was two, one in terms of, of wins between he and Mansell. I, I think Nigel had a, a a bit of a default setting when he was, when he tended to get beaten fair and square. And, and that was to articulate that, you know, the world was against him and it was all politics or something beyond his control. It happened at at Lotus with uh, De Angelis to some extent, and it was all Peter Wars fault or, you know, their character clash. It was true for a time at Williams as well, first with Rosberg and then and then PK on occasions. I think what Mansell probably should have done at Ferrari is to have had the foresight to corral the team around him more in '89 and '90. You know, he had the he had the love and adoration of the tifosi, and um, yeah, I think his relationship with Fiorio was 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 decent. I mean, it was certainly better uh, than it became with Prost through 1990. So that he should have made some hay while Prost. Found his uh, feet in that uh, in that winter of eighty nine ninety, so instead, rather naively, he allowed Prost to to conduct the whole the whole orchestra really of Ferrari, and um, he, again at that time in the the eighties, it was much more about the brawn. It was about the brain as well, and, and getting a team molded around you, which which Prost uh, did to his advantage.
0: Mansell admits in his book that he'd stayed in close contact with Frank Williams ever since leaving the team at the end of 1988. And he says he was talking to Frank more and more in early 1990 when things quickly started to go wrong with Prost. And Mansell mentions one of the other offers that he had for 1991, and it's one that's so remarkable that I can't let it slide without us taking a detour to discuss it. As he was contemplating retirement, he said he wasn't interested in staying in F1 just to make the numbers up or just for the money. But he could have done because he was offered a drive that he says was for plenty of money by Arrows. Ed, Arrows had a deal for Porsche engines for 1991, so they were trying to get serious. But how big of a bullet dodge was this for Mansell, given what became of that Arrows Porsche alliance? Well,
2: I imagine it would have gone even worse than when he did make a move to a red and white team a few years (laughs) later that Sam referenced before with uh, McLaren in 95. So you can go back to season one to listen about that. But it, it would have been a disaster for Mansell. It was a disaster for the team. The engine was heavy, underpowered, a long way behind the required standard to be competitive in F1. I imagine Mansell probably gave it a little more thought than you might expect because, obviously, Japanese businessman Otari Ohashi had bought Arrows. He was certainly showing a willingness to splash the yen. That's why they got the the Porsche engine deal. I think they had to pay Porsche at like $20 million for the first 12 months of the deal, and that included six months run up at it because they had development work to do. So while Arrows wasn't having a great 1990, it had some decent results in the previous couple of seasons. So it was a team with an okay reputation and The ambition was legitimate. Obviously, it rebranded as Footwork in 91. And I I can't decide if that's a good name for an F1 team or a terrible one. And perhaps that's what put Mansell off in the end. Who knows? But whatever happens, yeah, wise not to go there.
0: Yeah, maybe it's telling that Mansell doesn't refer to them as Footwork at any point. So to to him, they were Arrows. And Ed's done a video on failed F1 manufacturer projects on our YouTube channel, which you can find. And uh, yeah, the Arrows-Porsche alliance is quite high up, so... I think that tells you all you need to know. Let's move on to another big Ferrari story around this time. Obviously, the team are aware they probably need to find another driver to replace Mansell. And earlier in the year, they'd already sounded out Tyrrell driver Jean Alesi about his availability. And this was actually after the third round of the season at Imola. But Alesi had to tell Ferrari he'd already signed an agreement with someone else, and he wouldn't say who. It turned out to be Williams, who'd signed Alacy over the winter of 89 and 90. The deal was for 91, 92 and 93. And even though it was signed before the season, it was due to be announced at the French Grand Prix. Alacy's lawyers tried to get that clause taken out of the original agreement. But Williams said it had to be done then because Renault paid the drivers salaries and they'd want to announce it at their home race. And Frank also said he hadn't told them yet that he was signing Lacey. Sam. If you're a Lacy and your lawyers are telling you not to agree to that French GP announcement clause and Frank's telling you that he hasn't even discussed it with Renault, who are paying the salary, should that have rung some alarm bells for a Lacy from the very beginning of this?
1: Yeah, but I think the problem with a Lacey in that summer was that he had so many alarm bells ringing in so many different um compartments of his head that he was just a rabbit in the headlights to be honest uh, after speaking at length to his engineer at Tyrrell that year Nigel Beresford earlier on uh, this year for a feature that we did on uh, the race it, it, it was clearly the case uh, Lacey was was lost he um he'd come to Formula One in in a bit of a whirl bit of a um uh, a, a bit of tumult with uh with what was going on at Tyrrell. but remember you know, he'd been managed by Eddie Jordan uh, when he came into Formula One. Uh, Jose um, Alessi's brother was handling his day-to-day affairs and it it obviously just got way too much for him. There was eventually, I think, a press gathering at Hockenheim whereby Ken Tyrrell stated he had a binding contract in his typically optimistic way and Alacy would be in a Tyrrell uh, Honda for 1991. But I think they all knew that that wasn't going to be the case. Remember, there were there were no contracts recognition boards or systems back then. And at the end of the day, Lacey just got buried under an avalanche of initial flattery. And then going through some of these... Uh, errors of signing agreements and, and contracts. So it was just that he didn't know how to deal with it at that stage of his career. And and, and it told uh, off the track and, and on it as well because he had a, a significant dip in in form during that
0: summer. Yeah, and uh, I think actually we'll reveal later, in a later episode in this series, the, the incident that sparked the creation of the Contract Recognition Board. It wasn't too long uh, after this weekend that we're talking about... Alacey talks about all of this in good detail on the official F1 Beyond the Grid podcast in a very good long interview, which you can read on the website of Motorsport Magazine. So go and check those out. And in fairness to him, at the time, his lawyers said to him, do you trust Frank? And he said, I have to. He's Frank Williams. So that's why he signed the contract with the uh, the dodgy clause in it. We won't go into the full Alacy contract saga here. So Karun Chandok can mark up his bingo card as this will get its own episode in the future. But we'll focus on what was going on around the French Grand Prix specifically, because Alacy ends up filling in for Prost at a Marlborough event early in the weekend. And uh, Ferrari team boss Cesare Fiorio is there. By this point, he knows that Williams is the team Alacy has signed with, but he's telling Alacy Frank's not going to announce it this weekend as promised because Williams are trying to sign Ayrton Senna. A lady goes back to Williams, who had told him earlier in the week that the deal would be announced on the Friday or the Saturday of the Paul Ricard weekend. Williams says the stories about Senna are rubbish, but in the end, the announcement doesn't happen. So the big question at this point is, was Fiorio right about the Senna rumour? And it would appear that Mansell's account of the summer of 1990 backs that story up. Mansell says in his book, as the Prost situation became more unpleasant, we talked seriously and agreed the bones of a deal with Williams for 1991. But just before Silverstone, so a few days after where we're looking, Frank came to me and said, I can't offer you a drive next year because Senna's coming to us. At the time, Senna and Prost dictated the driver market and nobody made a move until they had done their deals. So, Ed, I know that even Alacy has always said to him it's a mystery why Williams held back on this. But have we now worked out that Alacy was really the fallback option, potentially behind Senna and Mansell?
2: Yeah, perhaps fullback option would be a slightly harsh way to present it, but he was in a a curious situation. And while I think Frank Williams liked the idea of having a Lacey in the car, he liked the idea of having a a proven superstar in the car more. So any team would go after Senna. So I'm sure it it suited him to have kind of a Lacey kind of dangling on a string, confident that he had him covered up through to the end of uh, end of September, and then of course Mansell later uh, became very clear he was available. And of course we talked about the relationship that Frank Williams and Ayrton Senna had on episode one of this series um, on Brazil '94. So we know that they they talked a lot. So yeah, I think it was one of those situations, and and probably Ferrari and Fiorio did very well to realise Williams was doing this, and kind of incentivise Alacy to not just wait through to September, and basically take the the Alacy fallback option off the table for Williams. It was interesting as well that Nelson Piquet got a bit involved in helping Alacy because he, of course, very experienced, he had his contractual concerns with Williams. Back in 1986, when he agreed that deal, uh, joining all the dots of that one and having spoken to the various people involved, as far as I can make out, PK was promised number one status. But I think Frank Williams just assumed that would take care of itself, and then there was no guarantee in the in the contract. So. It, he, he had a history of being willing to be perhaps not as uh, as rigorous in contractual negotiations for both sides, shall we say, but to do whatever suits them. So that that created all the confusion of eighty six. and I imagine Alacy was feeling somewhat misled by, uh, by Williams uh, for the 91 deal. Ultimately, it worked out well for Williams, didn't it? Because they didn't get Senna, but they did get Mansell got a load of cash, got a Ferrari F1 car for letting a Lacey go. Didn't work quite so well for a Lacey though because he ended up being denied a place in the FW14 and then FW14B. Certainly have won a few more races had that happened. But yeah, I think probably Fiorio rammed home the fact that a Lacey was, if not necessarily the fullback, he was kind of the, uh, the 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 in a position where he was being strung along just to allow these slightly optimistic bids for the likes of Senna to, uh, to
0: play out. And that story does rumble on over the weeks that followed we've hinted at a few things that happened there and the nelson piquet uh, interference is very entertaining but that will take us too far away from the french grand prix so we'll come back to it another time now let's do my t-shirt justice and talk leighton house for the first and certainly not the last time in this episode at this point the team is on a wretched run of form after some giant killing performances in 1988 where late in the year. Ivan Capelli occasionally challenged the dominant McLaren mp 44s of Senna and Prost. The team had a horrible 1989, and things are going no better in 1990. They hadn't scored a point since the first race of 89, which was with the old car, and across their two cars in 1990, they'd failed to qualify six times in the first six races, including a double DNQ in the previous race in Mexico. This left chief designer Adrian Newey, yes, you heard that right, scratching his head, He'd been aware that the 89 car had some fundamental problems and he tried to make the successor for 90 what he called a desensitized version of it. But it was just as bad as what came before. Newey writes in his book, The team was obviously beginning to lose confidence in me. Maybe I was slipping, making mistakes. Maybe 1988 was my pinnacle and I was only capable of becoming a one hit wonder. Oh, Adrian, how wrong you were. Now, Sam, knew he was still very new on the F1 scene at this stage. Uh, and if you look back on the first half of 1990 without the benefit of 30 years of hindsight, is it understandable that perhaps people would start to doubt him and he'd be doubting himself? Yeah, possibly. But Patrick Head didn't doubt him, did he? And, and that was
1: all that really mattered when it came to the, the summer of 90. Uh, people outside of Formula One were largely unaware of what was happening with the wind tunnel situations then Southampton actually had two tunnels uh the, the Mitchell tunnel which was a um, a larger nine by 13 and it was owned actually to some extent by Roger Penske or certainly the strut and the software were the smaller one which was used by Leighton House was seven by five ironically Williams used the Mitchell tunnel Tunnel prior to Newey arriving as it was building its own 50% scale tunnel in, in Didcot, um, unimaginatively known as Tunnel One. But the 89 Leighton House, the CG891, was was flawed mainly due to an anomaly with the Southampton, the smaller tunnel. So this was found out, and by doing some back-to-back tests, which we're going to sort of dig into a little bit shortly, um, it was it was found that there were some some issues with the the actual um, I think the the floor of the the wind tunnel. So in that sense, I'm sure there were some doubts about Newey. But but speaking to people who worked with him, uh, subsequently worked with him at, at Williams, especially Chris Saunders, who was there from 1986 to '94 doubt wasn't anything in the makeup of of who he was joining to to work with at Williams. Uh, You know, they saw somebody um, pretty young, pretty brash with, with some great ideas. And and remember there was this kind of buzz around you. Murray Walker used to mention him quite a bit, even in the, I think the mid eighties when he was with Beatrice. So, you know, he did have this sort of momentum behind him. And even though there were the, the, some serious troughs with the 89 car, I think, uh, I think that there was this realisation then that, that Newey could bring something pretty special to teams even even though the results that he'd gained in F1 were were reasonably modest at that stage albeit from a giant killing point of view were, were, were impressive nonetheless.
0: Yeah, perhaps it tells us something about Newey's personality really that uh, you could be as talented as he was and still doubt yourself. Uh, so Sam's talked wind tunnels there and we'll get into that now because around this time Former March team owner Robin Hurd, who'd sold the team to Leighton House chief Akira Akagi during 89, was building his own wind tunnel and he got Nui to help him spec it out. And it was just down the road, so Leighton House started using it. There's a brief spell where the team are using both Hurd's new Comtech tunnel and the tunnel Sam referred to in Southampton. But crucially, it was the only team still using that Southampton tunnel. And the results Newey were getting from the two tunnels were very different leading to even more head scratching. Most importantly, the new tunnel was showing that the Leighton house was aerodynamically unstable with a large loss of rear downforce at certain ride heights. And Newey says in his book, for the first time, rather than seeking to answer the problem on the car itself, we looked at the wind tunnel. Uh, Newey's book, How to Build a Car, is, uh, is thoroughly recommended from me. Uh, for someone who's an absolute genius when it comes to the design of racing cars, and that's Newey, not me, He does an excellent job of explaining in that book things that uh, the rest of us uh, can't normally understand. Um, So check it out if you haven't read it already. The short version of the story that Sam hinted at was that they find that the rolling road floor in the Southampton Tunnel has bowed, meaning the car was sitting above a gently concave surface. Newey says this naturally unloaded the diffuser, leading us to develop a more aggressive shape that could not cope in reality. Ed, this was just before the era where everyone had to have their own wind tunnels and it was incidents like this and the difficulty in finding availability to be in the tunnels all the time that led them down that path. Is it fair to say that without going to another tunnel, you know, a conventional one that didn't have a floor, would Newey and Leighton House have never found out what was going wrong?
2: It would have been harder to. I I think the length of time that they were struggling for suggests that with hindsight, they maybe should have had a look at the tunnel a little bit earlier. But of course, it wasn't their wind tunnel, was it? It was uh, University of Southampton. So it wasn't so straightforward to notice. It's it's very easy to kind of hear the floors concave and think that should be obvious to to notice. But it's not quite that simple. It was all to do with the structure underneath the uh, the belt that was moving. It wasn't like it had
0: a big dip in it, was it?
2: exactly yeah there was there was some wood that, that on which the uh, the kind of aluminium bit under the belt itself moved and there was a system in there to create suction to, to avoid uh, the, the belt lifting towards uh, towards the car in the low pressure but that, it wasn't that easy to see i think nowadays they think a little bit more three-dimensionally and think well okay let's make sure the tunnel is is consistent and doing everything we need it to do if you have a car problem but ultimately yeah, yeah, it's not it's not your wind tunnel, so you can't dismantle it and look at it and hang around for hours measuring it and it was costing them as well. So, you know, you, you can't hire a wind tunnel and say, Look, we're gonna hire this for the day, but we're gonna probably dismantle it a bit and measure it and have a bit of a look. You'd thinking, Well, no. I imagine they had assurances from Southampton as well that it that it was all working. So Yeah, they maybe could have worked it out but i don't think it's unreasonable that they that they didn't and you can understand how frustrating it was that they were basically banging their heads against a brick wall by that sending them down the road of designing a diffuser that was far too far too aggressive and that's why it just wouldn't wouldn't work in uh, many
0: situations yeah you know, i think these days teams are perhaps as you said more more quick to suspect the wind tunnel so if they get a problem in their own tunnel or another tunnel they're using They'll go back to back it with another one, probably because of experiences like Newey had here. And I knew he says in his book, it wasn't a euphoric moment because we hadn't yet got a solution, but it was a huge relief. Finally, after 12 months of confusion, pressure, depression and self-doubt, we had a plausible explanation for our problem child. So Newey gets to work redesigning key parts of the car, including a diffuser, although the Comtech tunnel also showed some aero separation under the front wing that hadn't been detected in Southampton. Newey goes through a cycle of redesigning parts, testing them, making adjustments, but there was another issue on the horizon. Leighton house owner Akagi was in financial trouble, so he brought in a new financial director to the team uh, to, in Newy's words, tighten the purse strings on his behalf. This was a man called Simon Keeble. Around this time, team boss Ian Phillips was recovering from meningitis, which meant a long time on the sidelines, so Keeble became acting team principal. And Newey says, now, if there's one thing a financial director should never do is be allowed to run a race team because bean counters, love them or hate them, by and large, tend to have a short term blinkered approach to the bigger picture. When you've got a car performing badly, the answer is to increase, not reduce your research expenditure and hope to develop your way out of it. But of course, he had his remit from Akagi, so reduce the expenditure is what he did, his reasoning being that we were throwing good money after bad Sam, you've been around plenty of race teams uh, during your time. Would you agree with Newey that finance people are probably not best suited to actually running the team?
1: Well, it's it's an easy assumption to come to, and and if you work for big racing car businesses, it's it's one of the first thing things that are bitched about in the canteen. You know, the the engineers gang up and 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 you know they they really do promote that kind of thought. You can see where the frustration comes from for engineers who are often stymied by what they disparagingly call bean counters as uh, as adrian used that same word but it can also work both ways as well can't it i mean you know can you imagine being the finance director of toyota f1 in the mid noughties for instance i mean did they have one <laughs> so, yeah i it's it, you know probably a, a loose term i would think then but you, you need a good combination of financial control and you need the engineering flair it's a it's it's a balance which is really hard to find. I think for for motorsport business, I recall the Lola F three program actually, you know, five when the engineers felt it it wasn't being financially supported properly, and it it kind of drove a wedge between between d- different departments in the in the company. And similarly in in Champ Car, and we saw it happen at Le Mans as well. I think unless you are a full factory entity, there is always that battle. But usually, you can only hear one side of the story, and and it comes from the engineers. Uh, more often than not ultimately the companies paying for it have to have a good return on investment rather than chucking their money away for the sake of engineering perfection and and quite often I think and you know I realize I am sitting on the fence here but I think quite often the engineering perfection often becomes just too uh, idealistic Uh, and and there has to be that that balance and there has to be that that moderation in terms of the, the money that pays for it all
0: that's incredibly balanced. Who'd ever think you'd hear finance people and bean counters being defended on Bring Back V10s? Yeah. Keeble had his doubts about Nui, perhaps understandably after a year and a half of underperformance. And Nui says they were at permanent loggerheads getting into shouting matches in the factory. And Keeble was making it quite clear around the team that he was approaching other designers. Keeble doubted Newey's claims about fixing the diffuser, but he does eventually agree to spend the money on the design work. But while this was going on, Newey was approached by, and we're going to have to stop and talk about this again, because yet again, it's Arrows. He was offered the role of technical director for the upcoming Porsche-powered car. So Sam, we could have had Nigel Mansell driving an Adrian Newey-designed Porsche-powered Arrows in 1991. We've talked about how badly that project went. Would it have turned out any better if this combination had come together?
1: Oh, extremely doubtful, isn't it? I mean, the prospect of Mansell in that fragile and heavy footwork FA 12 is, is pretty terrifying, actually, in the sense that Nigel probably wouldn't have survived it all. Like, you know, they, they had some major uh, failures and, and incidents in that car. Alboreto had a particularly terrifying encounter with the wall at Tamborello that year in testing, I remember. But, of course, Newey, I am sure, would have taken one look at that pretty monolithic Porsche V12 and, and vetoed it pretty quickly or, or looked to have changed things. You know, Jackie Oliver had a, a good track record on working with emerging design talent, such as Ross Braun in the late 80s. And after the Porsche debacle, there is no reason why a Newey-designed footwork in 92 couldn't have couldn't have worked. You know, they they had some good performances in uh in 92 with, with Suzuki and, um, and There was good money from Japan. It was well financed in 92 and 93. And then that dropped away for 94. But, you know, if Mansell had stuck around, who knows? But, um, I can't imagine that, uh, there would have been any particular success in, in, in that year in 91, if, if Mansell and Newey had, had ended up there.
0: Yeah. We'll place your bets on the next time we, uh, we mentioned that somebody, hugely successful in Formula One, could have, uh, could have gone to Arrows. Uh, knew he wasn't sure about taking that job anyway, as he'd lost confidence in himself, and he said he wasn't sure he wanted to be the guy in charge with all the attendant pressure. That's why he was more interested in a job offer we mentioned earlier from Williams, where Patrick Head wanted to take him on as Head of Research and Development. Uh, head says in Morris Hamilton's Williams book that we've cited before, that even though Leighton House was clearly in trouble... To him, it was obvious that Newey knew his onions on aerodynamics, whereas our guys clearly didn't. So brilliantly blunt, as always, from Patrick Head. And Ed, how much credit does Head deserve for approaching Newey here? Because he was clearly able to look past the results of the car and see that it was being designed by someone who, in Patrick's words, knew his onions.
2: Yeah, a huge amount of credit. And it's exactly what you'd expect from a man like Patrick Head. He knew he wasn't an aerodynamicist in the same way he knew he was, and he recognised what was going on at Leighton House. Because remember, this hadn't just started in 1990. The March 881 of 1988 was a hugely important car. I'd argue it's actually among the most significant Grand Prix cars, even though it never won a race, because you can draw a straight line from that car through Leighton House to the Williams FW14 and 15 models. It, it set the aero tone. So Head could see what was happening and made the offer. And of course, that offer was made before what happened at the French Grand Prix. So he'd seen it, uh, as you said, despite the fact that they were not qualifying for races, etc. Also, Williams had been weakened on the aero side after Frank D- Frank Dernier departed a few years before, because he'd done a lot of the aero work while uh, working with Head. So he knew he fitted the bill very well. And a lot of these ace technical guys like Patrick Head, they're not I mean, Patrick Head might come across as kind of a force of nature, know-it-all type character, but actually, they're also very engaged and interested in what's going on in new technology, and new ideas, new developments, that kind of thing. So he will have seen that aerodynamics were, were becoming ever more important and influential in, in race car design, and that they needed someone like Newey. You know, st- still for that sort of role, a, a young guy with a with a CV that that wasn't that stellar if you just glanced at it, even though he. he He'd done plenty uh, over the years. And Head could look at him and say, yeah, you're the person we need. So great move from, uh, from Patrick Head. You could almost say it was a, a stroke of genius because plenty of other teams could have uh, could have swooped for him, but but didn't.
0: No, only Williams and Arrows, apparently. But we'll do Newey at Williams properly another time because we've still got a lot of ground to cover here. Uh, Newey accepts Head's offer. But before he had a chance to resign from Leighton House, he was called into Keeble's office where he was told the team had hired Chris Murphy from Lola to be technical director. Newey was told he could either leave or accept a lesser role with the team. And here Newey puts in quote marks to carry on fiddling in the wind tunnel. But Newey doesn't hide behind that. He says, effectively, I was sacked. Keeble was interviewed by Autosport magazine over the French Grand Prix weekend. And while the focus, of course, ends up being on the team's result at Paul Ricard, there was some good detail on why he felt the need to make changes. He said the factory was like a morgue after the double DNQ in Mexico, and the team was in a really dire state. He said Murphy was top of Keeble's and Akagi's list to head up the design team, and this is one of the key quotes uh, Keeble gave. The thing about Chris is that he has the enthusiasm and interest, not just in the drawing office, but also in turning Leighton House around and getting us back to where we were in 1988. His enthusiasm is probably just as important now as his ability on the drawing board, people can see that here is someone who is enthusiastic, who has given up a good job at Lola with good prospects and joined us and is enthusiastic about it. That has helped lift morale in the factory for a number of reasons. Chris came out top of the list. I didn't want a dictatorial person. I wanted someone who could inject enthusiasm and purpose into it. Having met Chris a couple of times and seeing how he got on with Mr. Akagi, I thought he would do a good job. Now, Keeble mentions the word enthusiasm five times just in that quote Ed, do we think he's perhaps overstated the importance of enthusiasm there? Yeah, that quintet
2: of uh, of enthusiasms is a little bit uh, concerning. I think probably what it tells you here, and I'm going to cast a little bit back to what Sam was saying about uh, about the bean counters and that kind of thing, because I think one of the things where it does go wrong on the accounting side is when there's a lack of realism about what's achievable, should we say. And sometimes there's a certain type of... A, of uh, of accounts-driven, spreadsheet-focused person who will be very, very convinced if somebody says, yeah, we'll do this, we'll do this, well, great, yeah, just just declaring it'll all go well, et cetera. Now, I'm not quite saying Chris Murphy would have done that because he was a hugely well-regarded and able designer. The Lola LC90 was a decent car, so perfectly sensible appointment. But I think it suggests to me that that Keeble was maybe looking for something that he could quantify, should we say, as, as valuable rather than the, the kind of more academic, shall we say, approach, as in if you've got someone who comes in and says, yeah, this is great, we'll do all this, we'll do all this, brilliant, try and galvanise a team that, that's uh, that's really struggling against a newie who's a little bit more of a obviously established there. He struggled for for a while to get the car working. So it seems the, it seems sort of the the wrong thing. Perhaps we're just reading too much into it and he just means, yeah, we needed a fresh approach to try and inject some life into the team after, after struggling. But I, I do worry that perhaps it was a question of someone who was judged to be able to, to deliver more for, for less, shall we say, because often people go for that. And we should remember there was a lot going on with that team because Newey wasn't only pushing aero-wise, you know, he he'd got Jeff Willis in to work on, on CFD programmes, they were looking at all sorts of things that's uh, sort of advanced technologies and thinking about active suspension, that kind of thing. So, there was probably quite a lot of expense attached to Newey's plans, and maybe Murphy offered a slightly more conventional approach that appealed to the uh, to the book balancing uh, in them. Perhaps that's what Newey's referring to when he was talking about the, the sort of longer-term vision. But, yeah, I think if you've got somebody who's judging enthusiasm as the main criteria and perhaps even more important than their ability on the drawing board that's perhaps a a balance that's a little bit out of whack.
0: Yeah, and Keeble does credit Newey after the French Grand Prix for the design changes that get Leighton House back on the pace. Uh, But picking up on on one of the things you guys mentioned there, he does say that Akagi doesn't understand why in 1988 we were on top of the world and in 1989 when he buys the company, everything goes wrong. And he refers to Newey as being very good at aerodynamics but saying that Chris Murphy is more of an all-rounder. Uh, we're going to get onto one more reshuffle before we get to the race weekend, uh, I promise. And we're back at Ferrari. Chassis designer Enrique Scalabroni is leaving the team and he's understood to have received a financial settlement. So in other words, he was booted out. But one of the terms of that settlement is that he can't move to McLaren. But Ferrari aerodynamicist Henri Durand is about to do just that, joining McLaren as part of a major restructuring going on under the team's new head of operations, one Martin Whitmarsh. We mentioned this briefly in our Prost Ferrari episodes because uh, it later emerged that Durand left Ferrari because he couldn't work with Scalabroni and no one had told him that Scalabroni was about to be fired. So talking of Ferrari being a shambles, uh, there were rumours around this time that Luca di Montezemolo could return to the team now that his role in helping Italy's Football World Cup in 1990 has concluded. And Nicky Lauda, who won championships with Montezemolo in the 70s, believes Ferrari needs a man like him to sort it out. Lauda says uh, of Montezemolo, he could handle things which are not going right. The management is still bad, throwing people out, bringing people in. You can't win consistently like that. You need continuity with people knowing precisely which way to go. Ferrari is just like it always used to be with internal fights and progress going backwards and forwards. Sam, would you say those are wise words from Nicky?
1: Yes, I think they're they're quite prophetic, really. Oh, I mean, Ferrari definitely peaked in nineteen ninety. I don't think that is disputed, and it, and it became a revolving door, didn't it? Around this time, from a payroll, well, that's the thing. They actually get more shambolic after this. Well, exactly, exactly. I mean, they, they desperately needed some stability to go with what they had with with Prost. Um, you know, he had four wins in in nineteen, and definitely papered over some of those cracks. I think, you know continuity clearly wasn't a strength and it's interesting just from a Chronological point of view, almost that you know, when we're centering this episode on the 1990 French Grand Prix, in in some ways, because on that very day, West Germany were beating Argentina in the final of Italian 90, which was deemed from an organizational and spectacle point of view as a a great success and and masterminded to some extent by uh, De Monte Zermelo. So, you know, imagine it's the day after that, imagine it's the 10th of uh, July, and 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 Newey's moving into his office at Didcot, because I'm pretty sure that was his first day at Williams, uh, the day after the French Grand Prix. And is doing the same in Italy, uh, waking up and thinking, what's next? Although it took the following year for de Montezemolo to become the Ferrari chairman... You know, I, I think that that day after the French Grand Prix actually is, is pretty pivotal. It's got, it, it's got a decent claim to being one of the most transitional days in Formula One in some way. So, you know, for Ferrari, um, it went through then that initial um, chaotic period where Claudio Lombardi was in there and, and, and there was really no direction. But ultimately, from, from autumn of 91, when De Di Montezemolo did take up the chairmanship, uh, things started to at least get uh, get properly organised.
0: Yeah, let's finally move on to the race. At last, uh, Mansell's on pole with that new qualifying engine we mentioned, and Ferrari have qualifying cars for Mansell and Prost. So there are four Ferraris in the garage that weekend. Uh, Gerhard Berger's McLaren ends up joining Mansell on the front of the grid with uh, Senna third, Prost fourth. Nannini's Benetton and Patrese's Williams are fifth and sixth. But it's on row four where we get the real story because after failing to qualify in Mexico, Capelli is 7th in the Leighton house, and Mauricio Goudraman is 10th in the second car, so Newey's new diffuser is clearly working well. Paul Ricard has been resurfaced at this point, and Leighton house did tend to go better on smooth tracks anyway, but this is potentially huge for Leighton house, because at this point, they're on the verge of dropping into pre-qualifying after the British Grand Prix. The teams you have to compete in uh, those horrible Friday morning sessions that we dedicate an entire episode to in Series 1, they get reset after every half season. And in this case, the points would be based on the first half of 1990 and the second half of 89. And as we said earlier, Leighton House haven't scored a point since the first race of 89, so they're potentially in big trouble here. So, Ed, you're a man who loves a bit of pre-qualifying, with a performance like that from Leighton House, both cars in the top 10, do you think there was suddenly pressure on the team that this is the chance to convert into a result and avoid the threat of pre-qualifying?
2: Oh, massively so. Pre-qualifying is wonderful to watch from the outside, horrendous to be in. So that would have added a massively unnecessary complication to a team that was already struggling. So I imagine going into that race, just getting a point on the board would have counted as a great success from those grid positions. So that was probably in mind at the start. But I imagine they started to wonder what was possible when in that first into the race, Capelli was was running pretty well, wasn't losing much time. There was, uh, the pace at the front was nothing extraordinary. And Guzman, once he finished getting past Eric Bernard in that uh, relatively rapid, uh, Chris Murphy designed, uh, LaRousse Lola, he was quick as well. So I imagine they just started to think, oh, hang on, this, this is a, a slightly different race to the one that we that we expected. And of course, they'd done so much work to try and make sure the tyres would last that... Uh, uh, soon that that kind of scraper point to avoid pre-qualifying turned into something far far bigger
0: yeah so as ed mentions there um leighton house are in the hunt early on and gustav brunner an engineer at the team had decided that the capelli and gugeman would try and get through the race without a pit stop so they were the only drivers trying to do that and one by one the leading cars which as ed said there were all running closely together they all start peeling off and by lap 34 capelli and gugeman are running one two Capelli was ninth before the stops took place, but he was only 8 seconds off the lead. It's a really cool opening stint, actually, of that race, all the cars running close together. And Gujelman was 10th, uh, another 9 seconds back. By the time they're 1-2, Capelli leads Gujelman by 7 seconds, and Prost has come out right on the tail of Gujelman. But the cars stay 1-2 for 18 laps before Prost finally gets past Gujelman, and then Gujelman's race lasts only another 4 laps before his engine blows up. But Capelli's still going strong and Prost does cruise up to the back of him. But once he gets there, he sits there for another 15 laps and he can't appear to do anything about trying to take the lead from Capelli. And afterwards, Prost would complain that he really struggled whenever he got close to Capelli, reminding us all that dirty air is not a new problem in Formula One. We talked about this right at the start, Ed. Um, But when Prost catches Capelli and you've watched the race very recently, did you think it was inevitable that he'd get through? Or as he started to struggle and not really challenge, did you think, right, the race is on here, The, the win is on?
2: I think it's one of those things that when you don't get the pass happening immediately once the gap's been closed, then you think, yeah, this is very much on. Prost wasn't finding it that easy to overtake people in general throughout that race. He spent quite a while uh sort of sat behind people so once once that battle had stabilized over a few laps, I think it was it was relatively uh relatively straightforward it seemed to be for capelli also Capelli had a bit of a secret weapon because the uh, the mirror had fallen out of his right side wing mirror cowling, so he just had to turn in aggressively and assume pross wasn 't there, which obviously wasn 't quite available to him when the uh <laughs> when he uh, lost a little bit of power later on, but that was just a little bit of a, an extra, and I imagine that Capelli probably thought exactly the same as i 've just said there. Prost catches. If he doesn't get you quickly, you're probably thinking, "Yeah, I've I've got this, no problem."
0: Yeah, and Prost said he he did start to have doubts as this battle went on. He was admitting afterwards he felt like there was nothing he could do, and he had a blistered left rear tyre, which is making it difficult as well. Obviously, some of the most demanding corners at Paul Ricard are right-handers, so you're going to be working your left rear pretty hard. But Prost is then given a gift because Capelli starts to slow with falling oil and fuel pressure. Prost has one go at him into Lebose, I think, and Capelli rebuffs it brilliantly, properly chops him. But two laps from the end, there's nothing he can do. He's nursing the engine by this point to make sure he gets to the finish to bank some valuable points, and Prost goes through with ease. Are you both still there? Oh, he's taking a very long time? Yeah, I think I had a Wi-Fi dip.
1: Yeah, we're still here. You froze. Sorry. That's better. It's because it was the last few minutes of it in the Leighton House uh, t-shirt. you got a bit of pickup problem there.
0: Yeah, I'm running out of uh, fuel and oil pressure. I should have nursed it to the end. Capelli slows down so much after that that he almost loses second place to Senna. And Senna had fallen out of contention when both McLarens had very slow pit stops earlier in the race. So it's heartbreak for Capelli and Leighton House. But afterwards, in his interviews and even on the podium, Capelli doesn't look like a heartbroken man. He looks delighted to have finished second and says he was lucky to finish at all. He said he had a good reaction to Prost closing in and he did feel confident he was going to hold him off until he was forced to slow down. I'll ask you both this question and Sam, you can answer it first. Should Capelli have been more upset about losing a victory? He, he you know, he'd never won a Grand Prix at this point and of course never went on to win one. Should he have been more bothered about this? Well, prior to this he'd he'd led one for about two hundred metres, hadn't
1: he, in, in eighty eight. I expected him to be more downbeat than he actually was, and it was almost like we you know, we were watching a sort of a live dejection forming in those last few last few laps of the race. But he must have had time in those those last few dramatic laps to to maybe rationalise things and remember where he had been two weeks before, which was on a flight back home to Europe after failing to qualify. How surreal it must have been for Capelli to be on that podium and look across and see, uh, Prost and Senna. I'm sure that had it been a Lacy or Modena, then there would have been a lot more frustration. But I think for Capelli at that stage of his career, he'd been through this this huge dip in uh, in form, which had you know been brought about by the machinery at his disposal, and I think his kind of personality, which was. You know, he always seemed to look at the brighter side of life and and take things more in his stride naturally. Anyway, I think that probably was was shown on the podium. But the, the real boost, of course, was that the threat of pre qualifying uh, was banished, and and in fact, the the Leighton House points, the six points that he gained, meant that Ligier were dumped into that. 8 a.m. Friday nightmare from Hockenheim onwards. So, when he rationalised those things, I'm, I'm sure that he saw he saw the benefits of of, of of getting getting those points and kickstarting their season.
0: And Ed, you've interviewed Capelli about this in the past. Does he look back on it with any regret, or has he managed to maintain uh, that that attitude towards it all these years later?
2: Yeah, I've had the, the chance to speak to him about it a, a few times, and I think he he's still happy to look at it as a as a positive. But I, I'm no doubt there's a part of him that thinks, oh, if, if only, because he'd won that race fair and square. They had won it. Um, if you look at it, uh, the, the the finish, he's he's clearly celebrating as he crosses the line. And, and I think the initial thing was obviously he'd had the engine problem and just getting to the finish and not falling behind centre, which he wasn't far off doing, was probably the, the objection. So. Objective. So initially he'd have thought, all right, we've, we've saved the second place rather than lost the first. But I remember him saying uh, when I spoke to him that he's kind of initially delighted and then he thought, oh, actually, I had won that. And so I think he's gone through this process of delight and then a little bit of dejection, but he's had time to get himself together and because it's a really positive story for the team. And it was important for them to really sort of push it because it was the restart for this uh, this kind of upwardly mobile aspirational team. And they actually started doing, um, you know, that they really pushed the team after this to, to sort of say, "Look, this is a this is a serious Grand Prix team. Try and get some sponsorship in, that kind of thing." So I think he knew it was important to make it a positive story rather than a, a negative one. But I'm sure every now and again he'll look back and think, "Ah." Just another few laps if the engine had, what was it, three, there was three more laps to go, I think, wasn't there? And it was a scene um, that went past. So yeah, I I imagine those moments where he just thinks, oh, if only. Are those
0: moments when he bumps into you and you ask him if he's won that race yet?
2: Yeah, I I, I like to try and remind him of it.
0: (laughs) We'll end the episode looking at Newey again, because he watches this race from his sofa and he opens this section of his book with the sentence, I wish I could have been there. He called it probably the biggest transformation in performance in Formula One history for a team to go from failing to qualify for the previous race to obviously trying to, well, almost winning the next one. And he said, I took pride in the result and pleasure from the proof that I'd resolved a problem that had come close to breaking my spirit. Newey also admits that the result left him thinking, what if, about if he'd had the chance to stay with Leighton House because he thinks the performance of his upgraded parts would have given him the upper hand over Keeble politically. But then he points out, of course, that the reason Keeble was there in the first place was because Akagi was in financial trouble and over the years, he'd learned how to read the signs. Ed, let's finish then uh, with Newey and Leighton House. They've parted ways at this point, but would their future have panned out any differently if Newey had stayed? Because I guess the important context here is that Akagi was arrested in late 1991 over financial irregularities. He sold the team, it limped on for a year as March and then it folded Is this a moment where things could have gone any differently if they'd
2: hung on to Newey? I don't think so, because losing Newey was a symptom of the problems, not the cause. And what happened, I presume, would still have happened. Maybe 91 would have been a little bit better. Perhaps he could have come out with a stellar 91 car that was Williams FW14-esque. And maybe the performance would have changed things and got some money in. But you're still asking a lot there. The the problem was fundamentally with the ownership. And that's why it remains one of these great what-if stories. Could it have risen to become a powerhouse off the back of Newey's genius with more stable cash? And like I said, all this stuff they were doing, CFD and active ride program and all those things could have have really paid off. And they had everything that sort of Williams had, only it was a bit smaller and they didn't have a a works engine deal. Uh, And Newey himself has, has said that, when he won the World Championship with Red Bull back in 2010, the first time they won the title with, uh, with Vettel and the Constructors as well, he said this was completing something that he felt he'd started at Leighton House in that it was kind of dominating, winning in F1 with your team. And that, that feeling that it's his team was always quite important to you. And I think at some stage, the team, certainly when he originally joined it as March, they gave him the chance to technical director. It did feel like his team until it started to all unravel a little bit in, in 1990. So... I don't think it would have changed anything, but it would have been really interesting to see whether all the potential that was there could have could have come together. Maybe it would just have been lost down a down a rabbit hole, and no one would have offered Newey another job, and he'd just be kind of one of these people that turned up and disappeared. I suspect his ability means he'd have come through somewhere, but I don't think it was going to happen at Leighton House. Much as I'd have loved it to have done so.
0: What do you think, Sam? Do you think there's there's an alternate universe where? T-shirts like my Leighton House one that I've got on are still mainstream today and people are paying 50 quid for them instead of, I think, the 15 I paid for this on the internet? <laughs> uh, I I, I, th- I don't think so, no. I, d- I don't think Leighton House was
1: robust enough to become a, a a challenger to McLaren, Ferrari, Williams. But they, along with, you know, at that stage in the early 90s, Benetton and occasionally Tyrrell in 90 and and, and the odd occasion, 91, came close when... Conditions allowed it, you know. It it makes for a a, a nice uh, side attraction, doesn't it, for for us to look back on? And they were terrific underdogs, but um, I I just can't see any particular change. And, and as Ed said, it's it's all in the the directorship of the team, and and ultimately the um, the financial taps which uh, got turned off pretty much through through 91 and then the team died at the back end of 92 i mean that that is the unfortunate history of of march stroke leighton house but uh it was it was great in that 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 summer of 90 when uh when one of the most ludicrous uh grand prix's panned out from from what it had been the the week before in mexico
2: but we should say, what what an impact. You know, this was a team that had a short existence because that was a revival of the March F1 team, had a few great results, created a, an iconic car in the March 881 before disappearing, launched really an F1, the career of this genius in Adrian Newey. So what an influence it has. We still feel the influence of this little team today, which is pretty remarkable. And I should say it was a little team with a team principal who was a former editor of Autosport and, uh, you know, Glenn you and myself are both former editors of Autosport and I'm not sure we should be running Formula One teams so uh, (laughs) that probably says a lot about I don't know I quite fancy giving it a go (laughs) well Ian Phillips did a very good job we we, both of us might struggle to match up to that but but what what a remarkable story and that's why I'm so pleased we've been able to look back
0: on that among all the other tangential stories today yeah I'll definitely find more reasons to talk about Leighton House in the future if I need to wear this t-shirt again but we'll leave it there Uh, This is a great race. If you've never seen it, go and find it, uh, you know, whether it's through F1 TV or less legitimate uh, sources. Um, Knew he would have to wait just under a year for his first win as a car designer, which came in Mexico 91 with Williams. And it's fair to say that after that, he didn't look back. Thanks for joining us for another trip back through some of the key stories in F1 history. Let us know what you thought of this episode and get your questions in for our season finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. Leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice if you haven't already. And of course, we want to hear from you if you'd like that full Alacy contract saga episode in the future. Next time, we're heading back to the early part of the 21st century to the 2002 Austrian Grand Prix. I wonder what on earth went on that day that we might be talking about.